0: Greetings and welcome to this edition of Peter's Field Hospital, the official podcast for the website Where Peter Is. I'm Mike Lewis, and today David Lafferty and I are joined by a very special guest, Austin Ivory. Austin is a writer, journalist, and commentator on religious and political affairs. He is the author of the 2014 biography of Pope Francis, The Great Reformer, Francis and the Making of a Radical Pope. He is also the author of last year's Wounded Shepherd Pope Francis' Struggle to Convert the Catholic Church. His latest project, a book called Let Us Dream The Path to a Better Future, will be released on December 1st of this year. Let Us Dream is the result of exchanges between Austin and Pope Francis during the coronavirus lockdown. But before we talk to Austin, Here's an important message. Before we begin this episode of Peter's Field Hospital, I would like to make a special request. If you appreciate our work at Where Peter Is, and you've gotten something out of our articles and podcasts, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform that enables fans, or patrons, to make a monthly contribution to support content creators. Running Where Peter Is is not free. Our apostolate has grown to the point where I have begun to work on it full time. If we are going to succeed, we need your help. If you would like to support our work on Patreon, please click on one of the links to our Patreon page, or on the button on the right-hand column of wherepeteris.com. Thank you very much for your generosity. We can't do it without you. Austin, great to have you. How are you? Uh, It's good to be back, Mike.
1: I'm fine, thank you. How are you?
0: Very good. So it's been a big couple of weeks, so thank you for giving us some of your time. When all of this transpired, the, uh, the, the new encyclical, the statements made by the Pope about civil unions becoming a big news story, the new Cardinals, your upcoming book, Honestly, we're very grateful that you're giving us this time because I don't know if there's any guest we could have that could potentially shed as much light on Francis's thinking on these topics.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me, Mike. It's really, really good to be with you. And you're right, a lot's been happening. And as as always with this Pope, things move fast. And uh, yeah, but anyway, great to be with you and great to have the chance to reflect on some of these things. We've had the encyclical Fratelli Tutti have had the civil unions row, we've had a whole lot of new cardinals announced. Then of course, we've got Francis and whether he should be wearing a mask or not. So anyway, you tell me what you want to dig into.
0: Why don't we start with Fratelli Tutti. Now, you had some of the inside track on this encyclical as it was being composed. You were hiding it from the world that you were conducting um, these interviews, these conversations with Pope Francis. So I'm sure you were at least somewhat in the know about this big project that he was working on, because I don't think it was announced until maybe two or three weeks before it was signed. Maybe you can shed some light on how this encyclical came about.
2: Yeah, no, that's right. I think it was actually a fairly well-guarded secret, certainly by Vatican standards. I think there's been talk for the last, oh, I'd say two years, that something was coming. Nobody knew whether it was going to be on, uh, you know, the, the issue of war and peace, immigration. There were lots of topics that were floated, and I didn't know till I first saw it and heard about it what, what, that it would be on uh, fraternity and that it would be so closely linked to Saint Francis of Assisi. But you're right, I did get, I, I did get a, a, a glimpse of it early on because, as you say, I've been working with Pope Francis over the summer on a book which is coming out on December the 1st, which I know we're going to discuss later. It's called Let Us Dream, The Path to a Better World. And it's the result of conversations with me and lots of exchanges that Francis and I had during lockdown, really over the summer. And so as part of that, he was keen that I should uh, see the encyclical so that we could refer to it in the book. Um, So I saw it in Spanish um, and I think it was a late draft, let's call it, it wasn't the final version. So yeah, I had some glimpse of it.
1: When I was when I had heard about the encyclical and I was trying to anticipate what would be covered in it, I was thinking that this idea of human fraternity would be focused on interreligious dialogue, in particular, especially given the the symbolism of Saint Francis visiting the Sultan and that sort of thing. In the end, actual interreligious dialogue played less of a role than I thought it would, but at the same time. I'm wondering if you agree with this, there's a sort of shift in perspective where the way that we are supposed to relate to other people as Catholics in a radically pluralistic world, a radically divided world in many ways, should incorporate some of these principles of interreligious dialogue in the sense that we need to establish connections at a sort of basic human level and establish mutual respect with people who think differently before we get into disagreements over particular values or ideology. Do you you think there's anything to this idea that it seems like it's taking this concept of interreligious dialogue and and making it more of a, a way that we approach dialogue with everyone, with not just people of other religions, but of people who think differently, of people of different cultures. Do you think there's any truth in, in that?
2: I do, David. I think that's um, spot on as ever. I think what's going on here under Francis, which you can see beginning really in many ways under Benedict, but Francis has really taken it on, is the idea that interreligious dialogue and also Christian unity dialogue is not about resolving theological differences. Primarily, it's about establishing bonds of trust and friendship and fraternity. We can now use that word that allow you, as it were, to walk together, to witness together, to act together. And then in doing that, in forging those bonds, you create then space for the kind of understanding without which religions cannot grow together. And I think the other dimension of Francis's interreligious dialogue is that it's about concrete acts of mercy together, witnessing to God's mercy through practical charitable action. And at at another stage, even a third stage, to get moving on from that to to forging alliances between religions, between churches, between, frankly, anybody of goodwill, to rebuild society from below. And I think this is a really big theme for for Francis. So I think the fraternity document, even though it isn't about, it isn't, you're absolutely right, isn't primarily concerned with interreligious dialogue, nonetheless takes forward... The document on human fraternity that Francis signed in February last year in Abu Dhabi, which is why it's called the Abu Dhabi document, with the uh, Grand Imam of the Al Azhar Institute in Cairo, and that document ends with a series of pledges that Francis has is making on behalf of the Christian world, together with the man who's in many ways, symbolically anyway, has a leadership role in the Muslim world. So together, the two great monotheisms, but then implicitly also inviting all other religions to make the same pledge. So it's a series of commitments, and Fratelli Duty ends with those same pledges, which, if you read them, is a kind of, what can you call it, a manifesto for, for, for interreligious cooperation, for the rebuilding of society from below, and rescuing politics from the fundamentalists and the secularists.
0: You mentioned politics and Pope Francis here in the document for Teletutti talks about a new politics, the need for a new politics. And he even uses the, the phrase, I believe, politics of love. It strikes me that he is very much affected, very concerned about the impact of polarization in our world. And it seems that you're in England, but I'm sure you're catching wind of what's going on in the United States in terms of polarization. It's you're either with us or you're against us and there's no middle ground, or if you take the middle ground, you're gonna be attacked by either side. And I get this sense of a growing contempt. Now, having watched this resistance to Pope Francis unfold, I've seen a lot of contempt directed at him as a Pope. It's as if, at a certain point, a critic of his makes a decision that he can do nothing right, that he's always awful, that fratelli tutti is filled with heresy and a rift in tradition, and is the worst papal document that's ever been that's ever been put out. But that's sort of a mini version of what's happening globally between people with different ideas, and on the and in the political realm, I know that his ideas. Get attacked on a regular basis. Do you I I know that he proposes a path forward? And while he uses the word dream a lot and he uses the word hope a great deal, he's also a realist. This is a question I asked Steve Millies during our live event. What do you think Pope Francis sees as the practical positive response to what he's advising?
2: I think that's a great question. So, I think chapter six of Fratelli Tutti called Dialogue and Friendship in Society will come to be seen in the future as perhaps the key chapter. I know there are other chapters which are extremely important and obviously chapter two is the theological heart of the document but just in terms of the way this document speaks to our current plight I think I would hold up chapter six because he identifies and he names the very illness that afflicts not just America but believe me many societies including my own which is the paralysis of polarization, the growing tribalization of politics, the way that truth no longer matters. What matters is which side you're on and how loudly you can shout at the other. So rather than dialogue, which is about a a, a humble together, searching for the truth together, you have a game of power and he talks about it in the chapter it's really a power play in which I struggle for the dominance of my narrative and I have to defeat you now I think faced with this look an encyclical a social encyclical is about first of all naming the the, giving a diagnosis of where we are socially and then to to sum up or to frame church teaching in response to that. So in a way, he an encyclical by definition can never be really practical. I know in Laudato Si, there, were, there was a final chapter giving a few suggestions, but mostly encyclicals aren't. The great thing about, if I could just put plug from, for our book, Letters Dream, is that I actually get him to go into how he thinks we can build consensus and dialogue in context of polarization. And how it is a specifically, I think, he sees as a specifically Christian witness at this time, which involves sacrifice and to some extent martyrdom. It's a witness, right? In other words, we're not going to be appreciated for it. But how we can, without fueling polarisation and without running from conflict either, how we could, as it were, get in there and become forces for reconciliation. And therefore, letterstream us stream in, in the second part of the book. It is really, I think you're going to absolutely love it, Mike, but I can't say... Um, more about that just yet, because I'm not allowed to talk about the the contents of it in detail, but I would say in chapter six, there's a quote, which I really wanna share with you. It's in from number 202. Well, so first of all, he's talked about in 201, it becomes easier to discredit and insult opponents from the outset than to open a respectful dialogue. So he talks about how we're all engaged in these parallel monologues, this aggression uh, and so on. But then in 202, he says, the heroes of the future will be those who can break with this unhealthy mindset. And determined respectfully to promote truthfulness aside from personal interest. God willing, such heroes are quietly emerging even now in the midst of our society. So you see here, even though it's very dark and very polarised. He sees here's the grace, the germ of the something new, the witness So I think that's how Francis you know, sees it in a nutshell. And I think what he's giving us in Fratelli Tutti and giving us very practically in Let Us Dream is a kind of guidance for how we can do that. In, in you know, you're living through the US election, here we've lived through Brexit. We all know what tribal, and we're witnessing it to a remarkable extent, as you said, in our church. And so this presses down on all of us. And in a way, the Christian of the future will be a (laughs) depolarizer or will just be sucked up into the war.
1: I love that idea of the the Christian of the future as a depolarizer. I think that's a a really effective way of putting it. This is maybe a a bit of a, a sort of challenge to Pope Francis, but some people read a document like Fratelli Tutti and they see it as, Oh, uh, it's stuff about dialogue and cooperation, and, and it all seems very wishy washy, right, to them. Or it kind of sounds like the kind of stuff you might hear from global organizations that are trying to encourage like, like development, like with the UN and that sort of thing, and they associate it with a kind of UN style of dialogue. How would you separate Pope Francis's approach to fostering dialogue and global cooperation from, say, the approach that we be would associate with organizations like the United Nations. Are they the same? Are they different? Is there any substance to that criticism that some people have said that Pope Francis is, it sounds like he's turning the church into an NGO. Is there any substance to that at all, do you think?
2: Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think it was difficult for a lot of the media to get their teeth into this document because they assumed, as you said, that the Pope was telling us to be nice to each other, and that isn't news. And and after all, aren't we all supposed to be nice to each other? In fact, when you pick up Fratelli Tutti, you discover it's a very radical document. It's a very offensive document. You see, depolarizing is not about not giving offence. Sometimes you've got to give offence. Sometimes you've got to name the truth. And in the document, he names all sorts of truths, which, of course, have made people very uncomfortable but that's the prophetic dimension. And that's that's where he sees, and that's what, I think the big difference between Francis's approach and almost anybody else is that he's always going to the spiritual roots. Uh, and by that, he's using his Jesuit you know, great capacity for discernment to detect movements of the bad spirit, which are very often, of course, disguised as angels, because No, the devil only seduces nice people by pretending to be nice. We see this in our own church. It's those people who claim to be the really orthodox Catholics, the ones who claim that the church needs saving from itself. They're the ones, of course, who who cause the the real chaos uh, and are the most aggressive and the most violent uh, and most self-righteous because they've assume that mantle but Francis I think in this document is is always about naming that and for example the stuff on populism is really quite brilliant he really nails what is populism and he says it's using in the name of the people it's a means of of gaining power but actually it's instrumentalizing the people and so on so I suppose, a to, to brief answer to your question is, you know, Francis isn't afraid to give offence and to name, to name the bad spirit where he sees it, even if that's going to make some people very uncomfortable.
0: When we're speaking about making people uncomfortable, and this plays into what you're talking about with populism, riling up the people, and it's something that we have been trying to address since day one with where Peter is, it's... Basically how these opposition leaders, whatever you want to call them, these media figures, these rogue prelates, who they'll take something like uh, Amoris Letitia, which is an, a very long eight-chapter exhortation, or they take the the document on human fraternity, and they pinpoint one sentence, one footnote. And they turn that into the entire narrative. And I guess the thing that I'm noticing within the church is that they've been very successful, at least in the U.S., of turning the focus into into a one-issue question and ignoring the forest for this one tree that they're convincing people isn't in continuity. I know a day or two after the encyclical came out, a fairly prominent Catholic journalist, rather than talking about the encyclical, celebrating the encyclical, was focused on the word inadmissible in the teaching on the death penalty. And once again, there are, I guess, two or three, if not more, hot button quotes or sections in this encyclical. The teaching on the death penalty, obviously, he, this is, I guess, the other than the CDF document, his largest and definitely his most formal or authoritative teaching on why the death penalty is inadmissible. Also the fact that he keeps calling back to that Abu Dhabi document, even though he doesn't mention the plurality of religions question that was the supposed heresy in that document, but that sort of got people's ire up that he, I think he mentioned the Imam five times in the document is he cognizant of the things that he says that will become media controversies? Does he have a good sense of that? And does he have ideas about how to address that? Or alternatively, is it really our responsibility as faithful Catholics who are in communion with the Pope to try to provide the clearer, truer, fuller picture of what he's saying?
2: Well, I mean, Mike, you do it So well, and David, and all of you do it so well. Where Peter is, you what you do is, as faithful Catholics, you say, What is the Pope trying to tell us here? and you compare it with with church documents and the gospel and and the words of Jesus Christ and you show that it's all part of the same thing which of course you would expect (laughs) because the pope is the successor of Saint Peter is anointed by the Holy Spirit and that's what we believe as Catholics that the pope is really always evangelizing whether whatever the status of what he says whether it's an interview with a journalist or comments on a plane or an encyclical he's always teaching he's always evangelizing and as I know him That is who he is. And so he just, he speaks the truth. Now, does he take into account every time he speaks about what headlines this is going to generate? No, I really don't think he does. And I think that part of the reason for that is that, in a strange way even though I think he's one of the great communicators of our age in a strange way what makes him such a great communicator is that he's actually not particularly strategic he doesn't in other words think through every time he speaks which constituency will this appeal to and how do I need to frame that so that's really not how he thinks and because that isn't he will just speak so to some extent and I hope I don't sound uh, this doesn't come out wrongly but somebody said he doesn't care the truth is the truth he's there to preach the gospel he has that same pares that same apostolic courage that Jesus had that the early apostles had and ultimately as I've often said in response to people who say what do you say to to all those people who, who you know critical of Francis or angry at him I said yeah this is not a popularity contest yeah he doesn't care. he's not about being popular and again there's no surprise every pope has been ferociously attacked one of the things that I think Francis does and I think you've pointed this out is that he does almost better than anybody else ever <laughs> is he exposes ideology in others so in other words in preaching the gospel so clearly as he does he elicits from other people often expressions which then are very revealing of their, frankly, their ideology, which is dressed up as faith. And this is part of the role of a pope in a way. The pope has to be constantly challenging the church and exposing those things which are not of the gospel. And I think that's what we've seen to a remarkable degree in this pontificate.
1: I'm I'm fascinated by the idea of the dream as a sort of uh, genre. Uh, of writing, which is, as far as I know, pretty unusual for church documents and that sort of thing. Do you think, what is the significance of this idea of the dream? Maybe maybe the new book will um, speak to this a little bit. Why does Pope Francis choose to express himself that way and to invite us into dreaming with him? And is this connected in any way to his idea of discernment?
2: Yeah the, the origin of the title of of the book lesser stream it was originally come lesser stream and and the idea of, of that was Isaiah is it 8 or, or or 12 but come let us talk this over yeah this is this is God of course speaking to Israel come let to, your sins were were scarlet i shall make them white as snow so come let us talk this over let's let's imagine this let's you know let's think this one through and of course in doing that what we're doing is we're making space for another future another world another possibility uh, because dreaming is all about allowing in possibilities which if you like by day <laughs> get driven out or, or are excluded of course and I, I will need to be speaking a lot more about this when the book comes out precisely because of the title but um, uh, of course he does use the dream language as well in Querida Amazonia his post-synodal apostolic exhortation following the Amazonia Synod which is constructed around his four dreams for the Amazonian region and I used that in a retreat I gave here actually for the Jesuits so you have your your social dream the cultural dream the ecological dream and the pastoral or ecclesial dream and this is Francis really listening having listened in the synod to you know an extraordinary number of people talk about things which on on their heart then as it were takes a couple of months and responds with this imagining how things should be, and how we can help to bring that about. And the reason for for choosing that motif in in our book is that of course, the COVID crisis is a massive stoppage. It's a massive moment where our ideas have run out, our ideologies have failed, the economic model we were using and so on. And politics fails, everything fails in a stoppage. And then gives you that gives you the chance to reimagine things as of course we all have to some extent in our own lives during lockdown so there's tremendous suffering in the covid crisis, but there's also a tremendous opportunity and a grace if we're capable of receiving it and that's really what the book, by the way is about it's about it is about being able to understand being able to look now in a way perhaps that we couldn't see things that we couldn't. And then learn to distinguish where is God speaking to us, where is the bad spirit speaking to us, what brings us life, what takes away life, what's humanizing, what's dehumanizing. And having, as it were, the luxury of, of seeing that these things much clearer, you're then able to choose in the right way and then to propose actions which flow from that. It's really the See Judge Act made famous by... Uh, cardinal Cardine, the Belgian cardinal back in the 1920s but you know, the, the Latin American Church has really taken this idea of sea Judge act and Francis very much acts out of that and so I proposed to him in the book that we use that three-part structure. So yeah dreaming in term in, in a biblical way which is involves an element of warning, the dreams that Joseph has that he must flee to Egypt. So there's an element of warning and then there's also the dream which imagines new possibilities which open up new
0: horizons. It's a funny coincidence that as you were talking about dreams, I wrote down a little note to myself and I wrote the word imagination. And then you said imagination about two seconds later. And this is, this is something that actually has jumped out at me since early in this papacy. When he was elected Pope, I was just blown away by what he had to say. It, it was like, he's opening up my imagination, my Christian imagination. And then as the family synods approached. The very first family synod, for example, I noticed a lot of people, for example, criticizing Cardinal Casper's proposal and criticizing the idea that we were going to put these issues of, of accompaniment and reception of sacraments on the table. And to me, the thing that occurred to me was what Pope Francis was really asking for was this is the gospel, this is doctrinal truth, this is what the church teaches, this is what the church has practiced. But let's imagine if there are different ways to practice this teaching that apply more that apply that are more relevant to today's world. Now I think the church has really been thinking in this framework since the Second Vatican Council if not earlier, but I think a lot of catholics are still Perhaps, or, and I grew up in the typical American conservative Catholic scene, basically saw Catholicism as this consistent, unchanging bulwark of truth from which it will, and truth was probably a lot broader than what the core essential truths of the gospel are. I can relate to that frustration that people feel, and I feel bad that they're caught in it because they're unable to distinguish between what we've always done and imagining what is possible without sacrificing that truth and i see that very much in pope francis he's willing to discuss he doesn't get offended at ideas yeah cardinal caspers one of the funny things is cardinal caspers proposal was not accepted it was not the outcome of amoris latitia he wanted something to take place in the public forum he wanted a formal Situation and what Pope Francis prescribed was something much more private, much more case by case. Yet his critics seemed unable to distinguish the difference between those two proposals because they both deviated from what the church had practiced up until that point. And I don't know if I wonder if you have given any thought to other than Pope Francis and his successors continuing to repeat this point, but to instruct Catholics about using their imagination and being creative in their approach to faith that many don't seem to realize right now.
2: Of course, the great glory of this pontificate and the thing that disturbs people so much is really the same thing, which is that Francis treats us as adults who are invited into a mature relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And a mature relationship means ones where we're praying, where we're open to the Holy Spirit, where we discern, and we ask ourselves constantly, not simply, what does the church say about this? And as if that's enough and that's settled everything and we can then sit back and declare the rest of the world ignorant and guilty, but rather to ask, what does God want in this concrete situation? So that the church teaching it doesn't become a refuge, an excuse not to engage with the world and to grapple with those difficult questions, but rather, like in Francis's case, the springboard from which we can then re-engage the world in a way that is open to new possibility, to new circumstances, and to what the Holy Spirit has to tell us in this time. And one of the great ironies, I think, is that those that accuse Francis of lack of fidelity tradition are themselves, I find, the least traditionalist people, at least traditional, I should say, people of all, you usually find that traditionalism is an entirely modern construct based usually in some idea of the 1950s or the Council of Trent or whatever it is. But it's only, as it were, in the modern age are we capable of that kind of fundamentalism. Because, And then on the other side, what keeps surprising some of my more kind of liberal and progressive Catholic friends is you know, just how rooted in tradition Francis is. I mean, he really is rooted in tradition, which is why he won't move ahead on anything unless he feels, well, the Holy Spirit's there. So you remember in Querida Amazonia, you know, he simply ignored the question of the very probati, which had been so much the centre of attention in October last year at the Amazonian Synod. And he explained in a, a note which was published by Chivalta Cattolica, but in fact, I go into it in much, we go into it much more detail in this book. It's really fascinating stuff. His own discernment of you know, how the Holy Spirit speaks through a synod or not. And if he feels that there is a polarization there that has not been transcended, that the Holy Spirit has not, he simply won't move ahead. And in in that sense, he believes passionately in the tradition and in the unity um, of the church. And so, of course, if you stand back from this and you say the Pope is guiding the church by discerning the Holy Spirit, you realize this is not a radical modern creed. This is exactly how Jesus set the church up and how the Pope should have been doing that and have been doing that for the last two centuries.
1: And we saw that come out so strongly in his letter to uh, the church in Germany. Some have, uh, I think, some have mischaracterized that letter. Some have seen it as a a kind of red light when it comes to the, uh, the synodal way, or, and then the people who are involved in it have seen it as a green light, but I've always thought of it as like a yellow light, like a kind of caution. You're heading in a dangerous direction here you need to engage in real discernment and not a kind of procedural progressivism and that's something that is again in the amazonian synod this idea that the distinction between true discernment and i guess ideological campaigning and i just i see that more and more with pope francis this this distinction becoming apparent and that's uh, for me that's become a real guide to understanding his thought and a, and a good guide to where he may draw the line when it comes to reform, even though I I do agree that he is a a great reformer, as you you described him in the biography. Maybe this idea of Pope Francis's relation to tradition is a good way to segue into the most recent controversy regarding the civil unions and his comment on civil unions. Mike, do you happen to have the, the actual quote? Oh, boy. I can pull it up the
0: um you didn't prompt me on that one let me all right <laughs> hang on. okay so the first statement that he made that is used in the documentary is homosexuals have a right to be a part of the family they're children of god and have a right to a family nobody should be thrown out or be made miserable because of it and the second statement following it was what we have to create is a civil union law. That way they are legally covered. I stood up for that.
1: Now, when I first read that, immediately, What came to mind was actually what what you had written in The Great Reformer about what Pope Francis had done when he was, was, he was Archbishop of Buenos uh, Aires. Buenos Aires, yes. And he had proposed the idea of civil unions as a sort of substitute or, or substitute solution for, or support for civil unions, because civil unions already existed, I believe, in Argentina at the time. Support for civil unions as a sort of substitute for gay marriage. Proper, and so I saw that in context. It seems because I I knew about this 2010 episode, but it's had, and I didn't think it would be as controversial as it's become. But it's obviously struck a chord. Why do you think? Because I don't think this was really intended by Pope Francis as a really out there sort of statement. Why do you think it's had such a a resonance in the media in recent days, and why do you think there's such uh, controversy? about it
2: you know in part this is the mystery of news and the news cycle you're never quite sure what's going to just suddenly you know, make light everybody's fire and what what won't. I have to say well I didn't know that he had made the comments I hadn't seen the film. I had literally no idea about this story and on Wednesday, last Wednesday afternoon my phone I was actually out walking with dogs and my phone never stopped ringing for for hours and people phoned you know, what does he mean, what does he mean? And I got invited here in the UK on every show, I can tell you, you know, Today programme, which is our big morning for the next morning people were booking me like mad but then interestingly the night before they most of them (laughs) cancelled and the reason is that they had realised by the evening that the Pope was not endorsing gay marriage because I think honestly that's how it was first put out Uh, and and Pope blesses Gay Unions was the the newsroom story Uh, and then of course they started to pick it apart and I tried to do my bit by posting those pages from the great reformer on Twitter, which I think helped. And the story, of course, back in 2010, which is the one you've alluded to, there wasn't a civil unions law in Argentina as such. There had been one, there was a city-wide one from 2010. Uh, okay, yeah. Uh, which was a kind of what we call in Britain a civil partnership law, which allowed cohabiting couples to have certain marital, Michael marital rights, or rights similar to those enjoyed by married couples. And But 2010, what happened is suddenly out of the blue, the Kirchner government, in fact, it was Christina in, in power at the time, but Nestor, her husband, remained the power behind the throne, just really out of the blue, came up with the same-sex marriage law, complete redefinition of marriage, and landed it suddenly on everybody's plate. And, and Kirchner was very, you know, bold about it. I didn't put this in the book, but he, he said, I didn't give a crap about gay people. I just want to see Bergoglio. I want to kick Bergoglio in the balls. I mean, he was he used to speak like that. He was very obvious about it. It was a clear, easy win for him. Get the church to defend traditional marriage and you make them look homophobic. So the church was suddenly faced with this. And what Bergoglio did, and as I explained in a Commonwealth article I've just done, uh, is that he said to the bishops, look, there is nothing wrong with us advocating. We should advocate a law which recognises, for example, the rights of cohabiting people to visit each other in hospital, make decisions about welfare and care, inherit property, that kind of thing. Those are rights which, as matters of civil justice, we should be advocating, uh, not just for gay people, but for you know spinster sisters, or because actually, as the law should encourage stable, long-term partnerships. What happens is well known: is that Bergoglio, who was at the time president of the bishops conference lost that vote with the other bishops mostly because the conservative wing of the bishops pointed to the 2003 document that which was a few years earlier by the man who was now pope joseph ratzinger saying under no circumstances should we recognize same-sex unions so you know they said they it was a classic category by endorsing civil unions, are we cooperating with, collaborating with, as they would call it, evil or disordered relationships? Anyway, in all of that, he got defeated. And what Begoglio predicted exactly came to pass. We had, a, a there was a, in Argentina, a, a, a polarisation in which the church became the matter. It was no longer about gay rights. It was about the church imposing its law and all rest of it. And as happened in this country, as has happened, David, very early on in your country, we have the marriage redefinition and it makes me and I one of the reasons for writing this article in Commonweal is that this is personal for me because back in 2012 when UK introduced its same-sex marriage law under David Cameron I was still very involved in a project called Catholic Voices which was all about getting the Catholic voice out in the media and we were actually the only group of of people only group of Christians really apart from a few evangelicals who dared to go out and argue against gay marriage you know so I have it's why I laugh when people accuse me of being a liberalist but I argued against gay marriage. But of course, what was thrown back in my face constantly was that the church wasn't even in favour in 2004 of civil partnerships for gay people. And of course, that was true, because exactly the same thing happened here. The UK bishops felt they couldn't, even though they wanted to, I think, back the civil partnerships bill, precisely because of that 2003 document. Anyway, all of this is by way of background to say that Bergoglio has consistently defended that idea, asked about it in a Mexican interview last year. He simply said it. He said the quote that you've read out. And again, this is Francis just telling the truth as it is. Has he written a document to strike down the CDF document of 2003? No, he hasn't. Has he made a solemn declaration? No, he hasn't. But he's told the truth. And the truth is, people you can recognize the civil rights of cohabitees without redefining marriage and that doesn't imply approval of homosexual relationships but it does recognize that those relationships have things which you know are good and have a social good just as any anybody who sacrifices themselves in care for others there's an element of good there that needs to be recognized that's Francis he just told the truth, and we <laughs> left us all to get on with it. Of course, we've had a week, haven't we, of endless speculation about where it all came from, the Vatican being quiet. I think Francis, he tells the truth and lets us work it out.
0: Well, even though I, I definitely believe firmly, clearly he said it. Clearly he meant it. There w- does seem to have been a little bit of video editing to make it sound like the first statement was speaking to the second statement. But the thing that I find really interesting is this is from a 2019 interview with a Mexican journalist and the full length interview cut the statement about civil unions. Now, Jerry O'Connell from America wrote a fairly comprehensive insider view. And he said that this type of cut would have been approved by Pope Francis. So what I find fairly interesting, and I don't know the degree to which they knew the content of the documentary before it came out, it may have struck them completely by surprise, was that back in 2019, Pope Francis was either convinced or consented to, or maybe he even asked that piece be removed from the full interview, yet it came out anyway. A lot has been made about the Vatican's silence about this. And I don't know if I was being presumptuous, but in my most recent response to the response, so to speak, and especially in light of Jerry's article, I think there's a strong possibility that even though Francis wasn't anticipating this, he may see the hand of divine providence in the fact that it came out anyway, and in an unexpected way. I, I was looking back at all of his references to the God of Surprises. And I don't think he regrets saying it, but maybe he thought at the time that the church wasn't ready to hear it or it would have been too controversial.
2: Yeah, I did not entirely agree with Jerry that because the that was removed from the Al-Azraqi interview, that was on the orders of Francis. I don't know. I think it could well have been a decision taken by the Secretary of State. or uh, I just don't know. And equally, we don't know how it was that the director of Francesco, where this quote appears, how he had access, well, we know he had access to that original interview because the Vatican gave it to him. We don't know whether he came running up from the basement of wherever they keep these things and saying, wow, there's this quote here that I want to use. uh, And they said, great, go for it. Or whether it just, how it happened, I don't know. But in a way, it doesn't matter. I'm sure the truth will come out somehow, eventually we'll know part of it. But I agree with you essentially, Mike. It's what he, th- it's what he thinks, you know. And he said it before, and Josh McAwee immediately produced a piece which perhaps went too far the other way saying, this is not news, guys, this is not news. It was news, but I also agreed with him. He had said it before. And therefore, I think a lot of us actually who have followed these things were surprised by the vehemence of the response Given that this was his clear view. And can I say also, you know, this isn't just Bergoglio in Argentina who comes up with this. These discussions have been going on among our bishops, US bishops, Canadian bishops, European bishops for years. I know that the French and the Italian bishops, they've all faced same-sex marriage, uh, marriage redefinition bills and laws and so on, and have grappled with this and have resented the 2003 document, not because they disagree with its, with its defence of marriage, but because it, it's too hostile to that third possibility, and that they felt that their hands were tied. So I think Francis, if this was well planned, or he said to the director, look, I want this in, <laughs> in other words, a very de- deliberate thing, it could well be simply because he wants to give greater freedom in the future to bishops who, where, where? because that ship has sailed in all of our countries, we've all got, but there are many countries, of course, where gay people don't have often any rights at all. And I think he wants to give freedom to the, to bishops to say, you know what, marriage is sacrosanct. It must be defended. Marriage cannot be redefined, but that does not stop us also advocating justice and rights for people who don't, for non-marital relationships, as I call it. Why you know, why not? If they if those elements of those relationships serve the common good and if in justice they need those legal protections, then the church should be advocating them. And, and this is why I ended up in my Commonwealth article saying, I find it quite fascinating. <laughs> on both the conservatives and and the kind of liberal Catholics are saying to Francis, we want to know what you think about homosexual acts you know (laughs) they want him to judge are gay people sinful or are they innocent is there is every sexual act and what Francis is trying to do is what Jesus was trying to do which is to say go out of your comfort zone it's not enough just to defend marriage what is it that God is asking us to do with these people how can we help these people how can we move them along towards the greater knowledge of the love and mercy uh, of christ and what does that demand of us even if it takes us out of our comfort zone so I, that's what i think he's doing it's consistent with him and it's consistent with what he's always done
1: i think too it shows his understanding of the historical situation that we're facing the it's very difficult i think to turn back the clock on some of these things and you need a new approach after there's one one position that the church can take when let's say civil unions or gay marriage is a live debate in the society. But then once that debate has happened and the situation has changed, it becomes an established fact within the society. If we were going to take the 2003 document seriously into the letter, we would basically be obliged to fight to take away even civil unions from people who have already been granted them, and we supposedly be doing it for their own good. So there's a real risk there, I think, of after the debate has already happened and things have been established, of doing much more serious damage to other people and to the church by pursuing that exact line of thinking. Now many of us know and work with people who are in gay marriages or civil unions, and it's not a nice feeling to imagine that we're on some kind of mission to dismantle their marriages legally. So I think he's pointing to a new way of approaching this, which will probably be more about evangelization And maybe, like we were talking about with Fratelli Tutti, this idea of just establishing a basic level of human fraternity with people who think and live differently and then trying to to work from there, to walk with them, even while we maintain our our values.
2: And this is, I think, a really significant shift, which is really what the Second Vatican Council was about, which is to say that the primary focus of the Church should no longer be on what one might call the defence of Neo-Christendom. In other words, that it's about saying there is a Christian society in which law and culture reflects Christian values, and it's the job of politicians and the church to defend that in law, because that's all about power, that's all about the state, and there, there was a time, you know, there was Christendom, uh, but that no longer is the case. We live in pluralistic societies which are which are secular, which are pluralist, and uh, the church has to exist in that environment. If it is to be taken seriously, it has to preach the, the love of God and the gospel to everybody independently of of those kinds of power interests. And I think this is what Francis gets so well a got so well the world has changed we are in a post-christian society and the only possible option for the church in this context is to be the church of the first two centuries of the christian era which is to say not with the support of law and culture but to go out and offer the experience of the encounter with christ you don't go in judging people you go in them offering the encounter with christ and then allowing you know, people to change over time and so whoever that whoever People are, and wherever they are, they have to know that love of Christ. So, a lot of the response to Francis's civil unions remarks has revealed some. Really, I think some really ghastly stuff in mindsets that many people have, I think, particularly in the States. The anger, the hostility, the hatred towards minorities, towards gay people, towards anybody who tries to reach out to them. And yeah, it's a bit like we were saying earlier Francis just has this ability to bring it all out of us. But yeah.
0: Yeah, I want to speak directly to, to what you were alluding to. Yes, I, I think clearly the second part of that statement is a change from the party line of the 2003 CDF document. To me, however, it's that first part about the gay sons or daughters, relatives, family members having a right to a family. And he said this on the plane, now granted this was overshadowed because the Vigano testimony had just come out, but on the in-flight press conference on the way back from Dublin, he said almost the exact same thing, which is why having read your book about Argentina and remembering that press conference, my reflection, I didn't need to know about video editing or anything. I knew he was talking about A, I knew he was talking about B, and he had said it all before. However, that first part where he talk, where he spoke about the shunning brought me back to a 2014 interview that Cardinal Burke gave, I believe, to LifeSite News, where he actually advocated or said that families were morally obligated not to invite their LGBT family members to holidays if there were children present, that was in the um, synod the 2014
2: October 2014 synod, he said that. That's right.
0: Yeah, and, and then to and then yesterday, I believe Ed Penton, the British journalist, the the Vatican correspondent for the National Catholic Register, posted an anonymous essay by an American priest, canon lawyer. I don't. It, Could have been Cardinal Burke for all I know with that description, but somebody who obviously looks to Cardinal Burke as a mentor, or I would suspect that, who advocated for the same thing, for cutting off contact when somebody is living a lifestyle that is contrary to Christian moral beliefs, specifically that kind of lifestyle. Certainly, there are plenty of people who oppress the poor or underpay their workers or cheat on their taxes who... They wouldn't have a problem with inviting over to dinner. This is perhaps the clearest and most stark difference between Pope Francis and a lot of his quote unquote traditionalist or reactionary critics. Like it's black and white. Pope Francis says, welcome them. They're still your family. You still love them. Treat them with kindness, uh, listen, share, make them part. Make." people who don't agree with you part of your life, have an encounter with them as opposed to this, it's a scandal, they shouldn't come, they shouldn't be there. The fact that they exist creates great damage. And I know in 2014 Cardinal Burke said something like, you do wanna keep a relationship if possible for the purpose of getting them to leave the lifestyle like a utilitarian interest would be the only motivation to maintain this relationship with a son, daughter, brother, sister. And I guess the fact that Cardinal Burke never retracted, never clarified, it was posted in five or six places. There is a huge gulf between Francis's approach and the approach of these so-called Orthodox Catholics. And I mean, I can understand why there's a conflict if the worldviews are this contrary to each other and I wonder how we got to this point. I mean,
2: so what happens is that people descend into ideology and they do so often because they become fixated on one or two propositions, or maybe there's stuff in their own lives that they're running away from and they haven't resolved. I have to say, in the case of homosexuality, you do wonder when you listen to whom is being most condemnatory, whether there's not internal issues involved welfare but anyway, whatever the reason is you become fixated uh, on one or two things and that descends over time into an ideology um to come back to a, to our book which i can't talk too much about uh but in in part two francis talks beautifully well i encouraged him to because i love his stuff on what's called the isolated conscience and he shows really this descent, how people descend into ideology. And it can happen, frankly, to anybody, in any of us. In other words, it can happen to religious people, non religious people. And it's this, but in the case of Catholics, it's closing yourself off. From the church, from the body of the, the, of God's people, you do so by setting yourself up first of all as somebody who is pure, as somebody who sees things that other people don't. It's the classic temptation of fundamentalism, uh, and then to believe that this or that group of traditionalists or purists, or on the left it would be progressives or whatever, only we have the truth, uh, and so this very elitist viewpoint, which you very ne- which you never find among the poor and among the ordinary faithful. It's always an elitist attitude, in some cases, descends into an ideology. And behind that, there is always the desire to hold on to something, which the Jesuits and the Jesuit Ignatian exercises is called riches, honor and pride. In other words, there is a gain to be made from being religious in the case of some people. It gives them real power. And because they don't want to give it up. They hold on to it more and more tightly, and then you get the construction. And then you end up with, frankly, with the kinds of ranting insanity of an Archbishop Vigano, who's just, David, uh, brilliantly, shows <laughs> completely gone off the rails. How does that happen? How do you take this Vatican diplomat who becomes... And, and, you know, we're talking here not about an intellectual degeneration. We're talking about a spiritual a corruption, uh, and then the mind then is, is so anyway, I find all this amazing and very, very interesting. And, um, uh, and you know, that is part of who we have to deal with. Again, it, when you're a mature Christian, you have to deal with the fact that not everybody who calls themselves Christians necessarily has that relationship with Christ or that openness to the Holy Spirit. And we've got to deal with that. We, the, Our church has always been full of every kind of people uh, and still is. And again, if, if you want a childish faith, it, 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 some of these guys are cardinals. <laughs> it's just a fact. But then look at the first apostles. Not all of them turned out well. That's part of the mystery of our church. And by the way, as I often say to people about it, our church is not a good institution. Only God is good, as Jesus said. W- what the church is, is, a place of spiritual combat and a place of spiritual t- Temptation, and it, in the, it's in the dy- dynamism of that. We're none of us that far away from corruption. Any of us, where there is good, there is the opposite, and so on. We are attempted people, and therefore we're all on the snakes and ladders. And that's, I think, what's so glorious in many ways about the Catholic Church. If we were all perfect heroes and, 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 and saints, it would be rather dull, and there would be no real challenge.
0: This concludes part one of our interview with Austin Ivory. Once again, his upcoming book is. Let Us Dream, The Path to a Better Future by Pope Francis, and it's due to be released on December 1st, just in time for Christmas. We are especially grateful to our Patreon sponsors, especially Melinda, Jeannie, Steve, William, Lisa, and Joshua. Thank you. We can't do it without you. If you enjoy our website and content, and you would like to support us, please consider becoming a Patreon sponsor. Click on one of the links provided to visit our Patreon page. Finally, here's a preview of part two of our interview with Austin Ivory, where we talk with him about the new Cardinals who were recently appointed by Pope Francis.
2: I don't think Francis ever appoints a Cardinal whom he does not recognize as being a great pastor, a great evangelizer, a person of prayer. and So So these are clearly men who have struck him. He's got to know them. He's impressed by them. He thinks they should be part of the
0: college. You can look for part two to be released in the coming days. Patreon supporters will get a first listen. I'm Mike Lewis, and on behalf of all the contributors to wherepeteris.com, Until next time, God bless and take care.